You are listening to A Public Affair on KGNU. I am Jackie Sedley. This week marks the 10-year anniversary of the Boulder County floods. From September 11th through September 15th of 2013, more than 18 inches of rain fell, causing never-before-seen flooding in the region. Countless people lost their homes, and some lost their lives. It's been a decade, and the Front Range is still recovering on a geographical, economical, and emotional level. Today's show will focus on the floods, both to commemorate the unprecedented level of disaster and to talk about what's been done and is continuing to be done to prepare the county should something to that scale happen again. Joining me in the studio today are two guests. The first is Katie Arrington, the Recovery and Resiliency Program Manager for Boulder County, working on flood mitigation and recovery efforts since 2013. Hi, Katie. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Jackie. And Maeve Conran is also with us. You've most certainly heard her on our airwaves before. She's currently the managing editor at the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. And before that was longtime news director here at KGNU. Maeve, thanks for setting time aside this morning. Oh, it's good to be here, Jackie. Thank you. So a reminder to all you listeners out there as we get started, this is a call-in show and we really do want to hear from you. If you lived in Boulder County during the floods or if you have any questions or comments about flood recovery and mitigation, you're welcome to call in at 303-442-4242 or email us at dj at kgnu.org. We will start taking your calls shortly. So there's so much to cover in the next 55 minutes or so. I think the best place to start is back in time a little bit, back to 2013, 10 years ago. Some of the municipalities hit the hardest across the Front Range by the floods were Boulder, Longmont, Louisville, Erie, Jamestown, Lyons, and Superior. Maeve, you were news director here at the station when the floods took place. I've listened to a lot of your archival reporting from back then, and we'll be hearing clips from that reporting throughout today's show. But first, to the best of your ability, can you paint a picture of what you were seeing and hearing on the streets of the Front Range in September of 2013? Yes, well, it was wet, and I think... uh uh, going back in preparation for the show, I went back and listened to a lot of the archival stuff from then, but also going back, even reading my emails and I could get a sense of the urgency as the uh, evening progressed and more and more rain was coming and uh, weather alerts were coming out. And there was you know frantic messaging to the DJs to make sure that you're keeping on top of the weather and the alerts and then they were coming in more frequently and then they were a little bit more urgent. And then we all started to realise that our, our own homes were being impacted and, and the roads because, of course, you know, everyone here at KGNU is living in the community. So it, it took on this whole other level of urgency. There was definitely a sense of, of disbelief that this could end up at the scale that it was, that it subsequently ended up at. I had a very good friend of mine living in Lyons at the time and, and she was featured in a lot of my subsequent reporting because she lived in the Confluence area, which was sort of the old town mm. of Lyons, uh, the Confluence, right between the, the two rivers and lost her home. And I remember just the texts going back and forth and the very urgent one, like, we're gone. And um, luckily she had a friend up a hill that she was able to drive up to but th there was definitely a, a sense of increasing urgency as the rain was progressively getting worse and then a real realisation of what was happening and then with the news coming out of Jamestown and the mudslides and then just literally seeing 
with our own eyes what was happening. We're not very far from Boulder Creek and that was breaching its banks. And then the roads were becoming impassable. So there was, as, as I was reflecting on it, reading back through some of those old emails, listening back to some of that coverage in the immediate aftermath, just that sense of how the urgency and I don't want to say panic. I mean, there was, of course, panic, but just how it just started ramping up, ramping up. And then very quickly it became apparent that this was something we had never dealt with before. Mm. And you lived in Longmont during the time, right? Yes, uh, still there. And I was two blocks away from a massive flood in Longmont. Uh, there was, uh, in fact, the, the, the St. Vrain. I, I live in Old Town, but I'm up a hill. So those two blocks, very importantly, are uphill to mm. my house. So I wandered downhill a couple of days or the morning after, I think it was on, on September 13th, just to see this lake that had not been a lake the night before or the day before is where the train tracks are. We could see houses being flooded. And, and I remember just, just talking to neighbours. A lot of neighbours did have basements flooded. I have... Um, yeah, so many stories were, were just coming out, but just seeing the sort of sense of disbelief and, and also real fear of is it going to continue to rise? Because we had this massive deluge of rain, but then it continued to rain and we were all watching the skies going, is it going to stop? Is it going to dry out? What's going to happen? And the smell. I remember that. I'm very connected to smells really tap into it as a memory for me. And I had forgotten about that. But reading back, as I said, in preparation for this, some of the emails even to friends in Ireland, because, of course, then this was hitting the news around the world. People were emailing me going, are you OK? I recognise all those names that are in the news. And I remember describing this a stench in the air that is mm. really impactful here. So it is interesting reflecting back on what it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. And um, going back to that morning that you were talking about when you walked downhill and you saw almost a massive river running along First Avenue where the street and the railway railway tracks had once been and you were gauging those physical and emotional reactions to the scene. I wanted to play a clip of one of those observations now just so we can get a bigger picture of what was happening on the ground. From this side of the power pole is First Avenue, and then there's railroad track on the other side, and then there's an open space to the granary over there. How long have you lived here? About 28 years. Have you ever seen anything like this? I grew up in Boulder and then moved to Longmont in 82, and I've never seen anything like this. And, you know, so that sick 1960. <laughs> so. Now, are you just out? Taking pictures and looking, oh, or are you no, actually trying to get north south? I live just up the block, uh, yeah, right up the street, so I'm just walking down to see whether it came up anymore in the night. Has it come up anymore? Has it stopped here? Has it been pretty stable since about 10 yesterday morning? Um, no, it's been coming up. Uh, about 4 this morning, it was to the bottom of that driveway there, and that's as high as it's gotten. Where are we? We are in... Uh, Longmont, Colorado, at Lincoln and Lincoln and the and the flood first in Lincoln, and it is uh, something. It's a river out here. The high water mark looks like about a foot higher than it was now. Right now, it's up past the first row of houses. The railroad track is is underwater, and I tried to get across last night. The railroad track was washed out. I walked across a trestle, and this whole area of Boston, it's it's all underwater. 
Never seen anything like it before is what kept being repeated. Maeve, how does it feel to hear those reactions 10 years later to the day? Yeah, it is so interesting that everyone had been awake for probably two days at that point and you can hear it in people's voice but there was just such a sense of shock I think um, yeah, and people were just walking around and you didn't know if people were just walking around to, to look at what was going on or actually trying to get somewhere all the roads at that point had been closed there was one road out of Longmont and it was in the north part of the city Highway 66 to I-25 we, it was essentially a moat around the city and so there was just so many different things that were impacting people. People were trying to get places. Do I leave? If I leave, I mightn't get back in. I mean, there was just this real sense of disbelief as we as we heard there. Many of, of the folks I spoke to had just never seen anything like that. And the lady was saying there, it's like, we're just watching to see, is it going to keep rising? How close is it going to get to my house? Because we were standing a couple of houses away from the major flood and a lot of houses had been flooded and people were just standing there going, is my house next? Right, right. Katie, I wanted to turn to you. I know you were hired to work for the county shortly after the floods. What kind of work were you doing at the onset there? Yeah, so um, my family and I moved here in June of 2013 and I was hired in November of 2013 to help with flood recovery efforts. And the main goal of our initial flood recovery efforts was community engagement, town halls, listening to residents about um, their experiences, visiting properties. My first day on the job, I uh, had a meeting in in, um, Nederland with all the community members. It was a kind of sink or swim situation, get thrown right into it, um, do the work, engage the community. And that's really what uh, my office in Boulder County, the Recovery and Resiliency Division, is uh, prioritizes is community engagement and how do we have a community engaged in their recovery efforts so that it's not a what is government doing to you, but how is government par- partnering with you? Mm. And can you go over some of the comprehensive data that we have now related to damage done, homes lost from that period? Yeah, so um, as you as many people remember, we lost four lives uh, during that flood. Uh, one in Jamestown, one in Lyons, and then two in unincorporated Boulder County. 219 homes were destroyed. 1,289 homes were damaged. I think a really important number that's often overlooked in disaster recovery is mobile home destruction and manufactured home destruction. So I want to highlight that here. Uh, 95 manufactured homes were destroyed, um, and that's the affordable housing in this county, right? So 95 were destroyed, and 246 manufactured homes were damaged. 1,100 people were evacuated by air from the mountains, which was the second biggest air evacuation since Hurricane Katrina. 558 pets were rescued, and there were 800, 800 ground evacuations. And then from an infrastructure perspective, 25 miles of county road were destroyed, and that's just county road. So 36 is not county road. That was CDOT road. So 25 miles of county road were destroyed in addition to all the other roads that were destroyed. 111 miles of trails, 37,000 tons of debris were removed from the creek. I I can't even kind of fathom what that looks like. And... 
there was $500 million in damage in Boulder County alone with $2 billion across the Front Range and all the communities that were flooded. And then lastly, it was 14 inches of rain in just under four days, which is normally the amount we get in a year. Wow. And so you were on the front lines for a lot of that. Between recapping that data and hearing Maeve talk about what she witnessed on the ground, is anything coming up for you, thinking about what you saw or heard as you were really working to help people get back on their feet and and learn what the situation is, the severity of it? I think um, a lot of people don't know they live in a floodplain, especially homes and manufactured people that live in manufactured homes and mobile homes. And that's unfortunate. And I think we see that play out throughout the country and throughout the world is um, the most at risk or vulnerable populations don't know that they're most at risk or vulnerable. So that plays out now, played out in the fire and the Marshall fire from 2021 too. So that that's really what sits with me doing disaster recovery for, um, I've been working in this field for 15, 16 years. And People understand risk, and I think the most vulnerable often don't understand the risk they're facing, and I think that's the most, um, that's what keeps me up at night, actually. Can you say more about that? Um, Well, so we saw this week thousands of people die in flooding and in an earthquake, and some of those folk, some of those populations are the most vulnerable, and continually we have Um, communities at risk to climate change that don't necessarily know they're at risk, that are suffering in the greatest proportions, and are going to continue. The trajectory of the past week alone, or the past month, with um, the fires in Hawaii, uh, working in this field, it's sort of overwhelming what this past month has brought to this field in the amount of tragedies that we're facing. And um, it just is going to continue. And the frontline communities will continue to suffer the most with the least amount of resources and the least amount of awareness that maybe they are on the front line. And for listeners, can you just explain which flooding you're referring to that happened over the last week? Oh, yeah. So uh, Morocco had an earthquake and flooding happened in Libya. I think 10,000 people are missing right now. Over 3,000 people have been confirmed dead. And the earthquake in Morocco killed 2,000 people, and there's still people missing. So that's two things in the past week. Yeah, I'd like to just uh, touch on what you were saying there, Katie. It really just brings back some of the memories of how those vulnerable communities, we often don't recognize the vulnerability of many communities in affluent areas like we are here in Boulder County because we don't have such huge death tolls. Thankfully, of course, people did die, but the legacy and the direct impact on many vulnerable people is often hidden and not necessarily recognised. And I remember some of the stories about um, those uh, many immigrant communities who were living in Boulder County, but also further east, because, of course, then the floodwaters went further east and took out even more of those mobile home manufactured housing communities. And I remember some of the stories from some of those farming communities which are east of here um, where immigrant communities, many who were documented but because everything got swept away, they lost their papers and for anyone who knows anything about immigration your papers are, are it's everything to you and 
when you lose them and you lose everything, you then become part of this even more vulnerable population. And I remember just so many stories coming out from some of those farming communities out east as those floodwaters moved eastward from Boulder County. And of course, those manufactured housing communities, many didn't get replaced because they were in dangerous flood zones. And those communities just sort of disappeared without the ability for us to trace where they went and and do follow-up care. The other vulnerable community that really now jumps into my mind were uh, those who were unhoused because, of course, so many people sleep under bridges or congregate under bridges. And I remember there was real concern in the aftermath of the flood of tracing people who were so invisible in regular times, how to find them and how to look after them and offer services. And so many people, of course, they lost everything they had as well because that was all swept away. So I think really I I so appreciate you, Katie, bringing up the fact that we need to recognise the vulnerability of certain communities within our own community that are really bearing the brunt in in a disproportionate way. Right. And lots of time when disaster strikes, those low income neighborhoods with affordable housing are often hit the hardest. And oftentimes that's either because those homes tend to be in areas with less state of the art infrastructure or because access to funding and support just isn't as robust and accessible as it is for wealthier individuals. Can either of you speak to any other gaps in equity that you think led some communities to have a harder time recuperating from the floods, maybe to the point where they just up and left, like you were referring to? So um, there was a large study done starting in 2016 after the floods that was um, funded by the state in conjunction with the city of Longbot. It was called Resiliencia para Todos. Um, and it really looked at the Spanish speaking, the Spanish language speaking population and what their recovery post flood looked like, um, distrust in government there. Uh, so that work, um, really identified gaps, gaps that recovery have with Spanish speaking populations. So social network gaps, what does media communication look like? What does language access look like for the Spanish-speaking population? What do basic needs look like? What does fear and insecurity look like? And what do the relationships look like? And what we saw in the Marshall Fire at our Disaster Assistance Center was we had really kind of figured... We hadn't figured out the Spanish-speaking population outreach, but we've done some progress. But we had people coming into the disaster assistance center with three or four other language, which we did not have the resources for. So we quickly had to scramble and do more resource. So even though language, the predominant second language in this county is Spanish, there are several other main languages spoken in this county. And um, it's hard to resource everything for everybody all at once. Um, And I believe the best we can do is make progress. But I think we have made a lot of progress with Spanish-speaking populations specifically. I know um, after the flood and the fires, the, there was fires about two years after the floods, and um, a mobile home community that was predominantly um, Latino immigrants uh, had door knocking from police telling them to evacuate from the fire. And a lot of that community was undocumented in immigrants, and nobody answered the door, and the evacuation didn't happen as quickly as possible. So our Office of Disaster Management actually uh, shifted to a method of knocking on the door, saying, please evacuate, and then porting a door hanger on in Spanish and English, telling them what the evacuation procedures were, telling them where to go, making sure they knew it was safe for everything. And um, 
So that was like one simple change we were able to make between disasters with the lessons we had learned. Maeve, did you have anything to add to that with regard to the disparities of certain communities and how they were hit differently? I know you were referring to mobile home communities and places of that nature. I mean, I think a lot of those disparities really become evident in the years afterwards in the recovery. Can people even afford to live here? And I know, you know, Lyons lost all of its affordable housing and the housing prices in Lyons are well beyond the reach of anybody who maybe would have lost their homes and certainly in the in the manufactured housing community. And I know that's that's been an issue across many, many communities. But we see this time and time again where you lose the affordable housing stock or the low income housing stock and it doesn't get replaced, certainly not in the same way. So I think the it's it's an, an impact that has years of repercussions. You know, children then are displaced from their school system and, and people just have to move elsewhere. So I think a lot of that disparity became evident in the years afterwards. Navigating the very, very complex recovery system, whether it's federal funds from FEMA, there were state funding, there was county issues going on, the regulatory things, even at a a very local level, if you were trying to rebuild. Now, of course, if you owned your home, you have a different level of of privilege. But then if you've lost it, you know, you've lost everything. So there's a lot to navigate and, and certain communities just are just traditionally completely excluded from those processes because it's incredibly complex. Insurance, of course, the the fact that many people, I mean, I think the entire county realised they were underinsured, um, but renters, many people didn't have any kind of rental insurance. If you're in a basement apartment, particularly, we had a lot of stories. We, we did a lot of coverage for about a year and a half. We had a special half hour weekly show on a Sunday called The Flood Show to try to highlight some of that ongoing things, because, you know, the immediate aftermath, the week or two after a natural disaster, we're talking about everything that's happening. But really, the the need is to talk about the ongoing things. And so for about a year and a half, we would try to focus on those stories, the mental health impact on the kids in schools who'd lived through this, who had been displaced, what services were available. But I think even if services are there, in case you touched on this, so many people in different communities for whether it's language access or or other reasons can't access those services. So that's where I think you see a lot of inequity is in the recovery and in the the post-emergency time period as well. Definitely. I just want to say, add to one thing that I just heard Maeve say is that a lot of people can't access the services and also a lot of people don't want to access the services as they're given to them. There's a lot of fear and distrust of local government, state government, federal government by many populations for good reasons and, you know, maybe reasons I don't agree with. But that's also how do we get services to people that are government services um, to make sure people aren't afraid to access them. I And then, can I touch on one more point? So I was um, interviewed by Hawaii Public Radio right after their fires uh, a couple weeks ago, and they really highlighted the impact on the school population. And I think, I think kids in this current era, uh, post-COVID, um, there's a lot of unrest in the country, no matter what side of the table you are on. Um, the trauma of kids in a disaster can't be kind of underscored. The Hawaii Public Radio was asking me how I felt kids would recover when they'd lost their school and their home and potentially their teacher. And I don't have a good answer to that because I don't, I have kids in school and I can't imagine 
that recovery of the loss of your school in Lions. The kids had to, I was just at a Lions flood event on the, over the weekend and uh, the suggestion was the kids get separated and placed out to different schools and Lions and St. Vrain really fo- fought to keep all the kids together in one school, even if it wasn't the original building. So I think, you know, for kids, trauma can last a long time. Trauma can last deep. They don't, You don't know when it's going to arise. And I think um, doing everything to mitigate it now and watch it and keep some sense of normalcy um, for any child suffering from a disaster is really important. Mm. And if you're just tuning in with us, you are listening to A Public Affair on KGNU 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. Today we are talking about the 2013 Boulder County floods. It's been 10 years since that disaster struck the Front Range and steps are still being taken to recover and build resiliency should another catastrophe like it happen again. We are joined by Katie Arrington from the Recovery and Resiliency Division of Boulder County and Maeve Conran, former KGNU news director and current managing editor at Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. Also, if you lived in Boulder County during the floods and these stories are bringing up memories you'd like to share on air from back then, or if you have questions for either of the guests in the room, feel free to call in at 303-442-4242 or email us at dj at kgnu.org. We actually have one individual in the studio right now that wanted to share a comment. I'm going to turn the microphone on over here if you want to introduce yourself and add your comment. Hi, thanks. My name is Joanne Cole and I'm a DJ here at KGNU. I'm going to do the show afterwards. I'm so thrilled that you're doing the show. Channel 9 last night devoted their entire hour broadcast, hour plus, from live from the town of Jamestown and, and what a beautiful day it was yesterday. So I have two recollections as I was driving down the hill. One was it was a Wednesday night, I believe, that the flood started, and my husband came home and he said, this is like uh, Big Thompson-like rain. I mean, it, and then it continued to rain into the night, harder than during the day, which is an unusual climate pattern for us. And and then, as you know, the, the poop has hit the fanus. But the other two things that I wanted to comment, that the visuals for me, one was, uh, and they mentioned this yesterday, was... Community activism, number one, which I saw firsthand in Jamestown, which was nothing short of a miracle. Mm. Um, And, you know, we tend to think of community activism as a bad thing, you know, (laughs) but no, it's a great thing. And also hats off to Boulder County, because when the Four Mile Canyon fire occurred in 2010, we were all running around like, like, you know, running for our lives, number one, but like chickens with the Boulder County was running around like a chicken with their head cut off. They had dog catchers acting as police, and, and it was a nightmare. It was a communication nightmare. So to their credit, the, that Office of Emergency Management got, got firmed up. And and so when the flood happened, um, th- th- these these parameters were in place to, to help people, and that was remarkable. Now, I am very critical of the Boulder OEM today because, you know, for example, that an airplane crashed into a mountainside, I... I go to the Boulder OEM because there's a fire and and they they were not active at that time. So that but that's another story. So two things. One, my neighbors and I walked down into Salina, uh, a, a town where I've driven that road for I could drive it with my eyes closed. And we walked down from above and the, not only was the road gone, 
but it was a braided three a three braided river that was uncrossable this teeny little creek that was two feet wide at its widest and the the church the beautiful little church that's in salina was hanging by a thread there was it was undercut uh, so there was that. And then my neighbors and I also volunteered in Jamestown quite a bit. And the first time I went down there, I heard this mentioned, uh, the Southern Baptists were there, who is an organization that I just can't praise enough, no pun intended. They come, they stay until the work is done. And they were there with heavy equipment. Again, Jim Creek, which is, you know, a good-sized creek. It's a river. It's not a creek. It was a raging river, and it cut the road. And there was no crossing it. And uh, they came with heavy equipment, right? And this one lady said, is it going to snow? They were from Texas. And I said, oh, you betcha it's going to snow. But again, they stayed. And it was just remarkable. And um, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention. Speaking about nonprofits is an organization called Team Rubicon that has risen out of the earthquake in, in, in uh, Haiti. And this is a group of veterans who decided that they were trained by the U.S. government, by our tax dollars, to, to do disaster relief. And wouldn't it be wiser to be doing that here in their own soil? So if you want to get involved, check out Team Rubicon. And again, thank you. Oh, and then the importance of community radio. Because the thing you have to remember, and this was true of the fire when I came down here, you know, oh, go to the website, <laughs> go to this, go to that. No, there is no power. There is no power. And so... Um, uh, those of us who have lived through this stuff know this, but if you uh, and if you haven't, you will. It's only a matter of time that something is going to happen in your community. So have a crank radio, and KGNU will be there for you, Maeve. Um, and now I am the lunatic here, you know. Whenever, and Maeve's laughing, but yeah, you get a little PTSD after these disasters, right? And so, uh, like that rain the other night, yeah. at, at night. Well, I mean, to that end, Joanna, would like I was actually referring to you in a prior conversation with Casey about the ongoing trauma of communities who live through a natural disaster, and you yourself, and I know you've spoken about it on air. Yeah, survived the, the Four Mile Canyon fire you referred to there, yeah. and you were evacuated from Gold Hill. And I remember conversations. Anytime there's a windy day, anytime oh, there's a smell of smoke in the air, or there's another fire that's not even necessarily in your area, you're re traumatized you're re-triggered and so we have entire communities that are dealing with this in case you talked about the mental health impact on kids but I have to say and I know KG News discussed this and uh, dug into it as well there are ongoing traumas that are layered on traumas because we are living through this climate crisis and we're seeing more and more and then we're hearing about other disasters in other places you live in a mountain community uh, Joanne and you're no stranger to being evacuated and, and so talk a little bit about that and, and the very real impact that has. Well also I wanted to I, I you know I split my time in New Orleans and and, the, and also the one thing I wanted to say people after Katrina they would say what was it like Joe and I said well try to imagine Boulder with every home with water to the roof and you know that wasn't the case in the flood but every home in Boulder was affected by that flood and maybe it's, and I was so thank you for talking about the trauma of children because you know New Orleans suffers from this awful uh crime thing and and they talk but not enough about the trauma of the children the Katrina children you know and um yeah and what was, just on the news last night there was another thing about oh uh, the lack of mental health for children you know, we, we knew this with COVID going in, that there was going to be a crisis when you 
take when you don't have socialized children properly. And so, yeah, I mean, people, I don't have children and it frightens me. People with children need to be thinking about this and talking about this because, yeah, this is, this is a, you know, it's a real trauma for an adult, but I can't even fathom what, what happens with children. I had a, I had a friend who lived in Longmont during the floods and her house, she wasn't, her house wasn't lost, um, but their basement was flooded. And at the time she had four-year-olds and um, one of her four-year-olds about three months later just started wetting the bed all the time without any sort of connection to other things. It couldn't really be explained. To me, it was really explained, right? Like I, and you know, we talked about it a lot and they, they were able to figure it out and they, it was tied back to him remembering the water coming in from his basement. But it's that, like what happened six, what happened six months later? And I, I don't think we can underscore the effect of COVID on the current population of any age children, on all of us, right? The effect of COVID on all of us and what that trauma on the top of the other trauma is doing to these households that are recovering, um, currently from the Marshall fire, right? There's just more and more trauma. Um, so. Yeah. And we have a caller actually coming in, Marilyn from Boulder. Marilyn, you are on the air. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to hear y'all discussing this topic. I've been trying to get the city to pay attention. And Norwood Avenue, where I live, has been flooded terribly. It was a marsh area where the school is at Centennial and a marsh where Norwood Court is. And Silver Lake Ditch always acted as a drainage vehicle, but it's not working now. So I was flooded in my house and in my work studio during the 13 flood. I couldn't figure out what to do, so I went over to San Juan del Centro and asked some of the men standing in the rain to come move my furniture out of the house, and they were terrific. They were really nice. And um, at any rate, uh, I've contacted a couple of people from the city, but they don't seem to show up to figure out what to do about adding to Silver Lake Ditch as a storm sewer vehicle. So I think that's very important for that area of town, certainly for me, because eventually my property will change development. And it, many people on Norwood were flooded. I went down to the gym at the Y and slept because I couldn't find anywhere else to go. Mm. Had some real nice help. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, Marilyn. Appreciate it. We also have a caller, David, from Boulder. David, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for this awesome show and for Keegan Youth. Wonderful work, as always, bringing us together. Um, I'm run an organization called Goose Creek Community Land Trust, so I'm always, it's an affordable housing provider, but a different kind of affordable housing that is always trying to mix incomes and make mixed income neighborhoods. And I'm just struck by two things um, from my story where we have developed a mixed income place on the 
sort of bottom of North Street at Old North Boulder, which is still kind of mixed-income community because of the older multifamily buildings that were allowed here, but now are not allowed because city council downzoned this area. But that night, about 1 a.m., uh, an overnight guest of a tenant came up and saw my pillow off my bed, and I heard it splash, so I knew there was a problem. <laughs> so we, since we, it was nice as an older person, we had a bunch of younger people, and we all quickly mobilized, pushed the water in our basement, and we're at the bottom of this hill with no stormwater capture along the hill. But we were able to push all that water quickly into the floor drains and avoid, uh, you know, a lot of mold problems subsequently. Mm. So, um, but that brings up one of my two uh, concerns and ways we could uh, adapt to flooding in the future better, I think, is that we make people uh, to hide you know, their, some of their buildings, we can build more of a building if we put it underground. So the floor area ratio rules, you know, make you do that. If you're a portable housing provider, well, you want to build down into the ground. But the water tables can be high, like they are here on North Street, and we wouldn't have any height restriction um, for this new co-op we're building across the street if we wanted to be three stories above the ground, we wouldn't have so much flood exposure. But instead, we have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a special foundation to put this square footage down into the ground. And soil engineers all over Boulder say it's such a stupid idea. <laughs> you know, we're just dramatically increasing the cost of building um, by making us build these basements in the ground, you know, to hide hide a building. And I, I understand the concern about large buildings, and certainly we don't want to block out the mountains. But we, can, we can't have both. We can't have more flood-resilient buildings that don't block the mountains if we have a little more flexibility. So, but I just want to highlight these two aspects, that the conflict between our values in Boulder so that we put affordable housing in more vulnerable areas instead of having you know, mixed income everywhere. Um, and so that you know, certain people aren't, aren't exposed to that. So we have these beautiful values, but having a land market that allocates land to the highest bidder, which is the land use in Boulder and with low density, that means rich neighborhoods and exposed neighborhoods. And that's bad for everyone. When we have mixed income, then we have all sorts of people. We all help each other in a, mm -hmm. in a flood. So anyway, just two aspects to keep in mind. The importance of mixed income, that we all can be around to help each other, and the importance of flexibility about building height and bulk so that we don't have to spend a bunch of extra money to put buildings in the ground. But... Um, that was all made apparent to me that one night, and it was it was uh, an eye-opening time for many of us, I think. So yeah. thanks so much for your coverage. Thank you, David. And.
taking those points kind of into the forward thinking perspective, I was curious, Katie, from the city, the the past spring was one of the rainiest on record for Boulder, right? With May and June bringing almost 12 inches of rain, I read, according to the National Weather Service. This is great for water conservation and fire mitigation, but promotes a serious threat for flooding. What kind of prevention efforts are in place to stop floods from taking over the city yet again? And can you speak to efforts that have been successful or not so successful over the past 10 years? So if you lived in any of the mountain communities after the flood, you may have noticed how long it took to rebuild the roads. And the reason it took a long time to rebuild the roads and re-establish the creek corridors was in the effort to rebuild a more resilient system. So there were extensive creek restoration projects done and studies done for how the creek could be best aligned with the roads to allow for flooding without damage. So how can we allow for increased rain coverage to come down the mountain? You know, I think we have seven or eight um, creeks coming out of the mountains and Almost all of them were impacted by the flood, and they were all rebuilt more resiliently. Bigger culverts were put in. A culvert is kind of the tube underpass under a road. So when it's not a bridge and there's just a big tube under it, that's what a culvert is. So culverts were rebuilt. Bridges were rebuilt to be more flood resilient. And the creek was realigned and re, um, rebuilt to withstand more, um, more flooding. And you can see that a lot in Longmont. Um, I know Maeve lives in Longmont. But the whole St. Frank Creek there was totally rechanneled. The banks were reestablished. There's more um, native grasses and stuff that takes absorbs the rain. So the rebuild took a really long time, probably for many residents, longer than you would have wanted. And it was all done in the interest of public safety, infrastructure safety, and re-establishing a more resilient community towards floods. And I'd also add, because I did a lot of coverage on sort of river health and, and some of that reconstruction, a lot of it was also done bearing in mind that we also have fish populations here. And so when we are rebuilding these river channels that many had moved like several feet, that was the case in Lyons, the river literally shifted course. Um, you have to think then about the health of the ecosystem that might look different in different parts of the river. There was such complexity when it came to that. And, and I'm glad you brought it up, Katie, because there was, I think, a level of frustration. It's like, why can't we just build these roads? We can't because it has to be done in harmony with the adjoining river. And then there are so many considerations with that. That seems to be an ongoing process. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear how this is not over a decade later. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Like where are we with some of that rebuilding and, and what's left to be done? So we actually, as Boulder County, just recently closed out pretty much all of our flood proje projects. So 10 years later, that's what it took to close out. And, you know, it's a complicated process because some of our funding comes from federal sources. Some of our funding comes from state sources. You know, that number of $500 million of damage in Boulder County, some of that a private property, but a lot of that was infrastructure and Boulder County's budget doesn't have the ability to just absorb an additional $200 million. So we really had to work 
with our federal and state partners to make sure we were able to um, get funds we were eligible for rebuilding and um, being more resilient. So those projects are just now ending. And now I think wildfire is more on people's mind with the Marshall Fire. So what does wildfire mitigation look like? Wildfire mitigation has traditionally focused on the mountain communities. Um, Boulder County has a great program called Wildfire Partners, which will help you mitigate your home. And it's been focused on the mountain communities. And now we know, Boulder County knows, we have to look at the plains and the people in their... um, the WUI, which is the Wildland Urban Interface. So if you hear uh, fire people talk, they say WUI a lot, and it's the Wildland Urban Interface, and that's kind of those front homes in Superior and Louisville, right there at the bottom of the Front Range, that will be impacted in future fires potentially. So what does wildfire mitigation look like in the plains? That's something new for us to look at, for us to look at, um, and something we're working on too pretty aggressively right now. We had tax support and a ballot for 1A um, that happened last year that gives additional funds to wildfire mitigation. And all that programming is um, being designed and implemented right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious when you talk about this, and I know that I brought this up a bit before, but I think about the folks that with the rebuilding efforts that require so much money and time and effort and a a constant revisiting, like we were talking about, of the mental and physical spaces affiliated with that loss and uprooting of life as you know it. I've heard stories of countless folks that after trying and failing to get support from the county to rebuild up and left entirely, whether it was neighbors, friends of friends, or folks you interviewed, do you have any stories of people kind of aware they are now, 10 years later, if they if they tried to stay, if they came back, if they left? Yeah, there were definitely some of the folks. I, I followed Lions most closely and, and we did a lot of coverage on the five-year anniversary. And at that point, people had just really gotten some of the permits. They had to navigate the city of Lyons themselves trying to get rebuilding permits, the federal uh, zoning flood plain rebuilding issues, what was happening at the county insurance. You know, it was, it was a very, very complex uh, navigation process. Um, and I believe most of those folks had rebuilt. Some have left for different reasons. I have to think the flood is just an underlying issue when we talked earlier about trauma, that it's just something that stays with you. I I will say that, you know, one of the stories that really struck me that I know was very impactful, that seems sort of maybe an obscure part of this, but there was a lot of bridges. And I know Katie has the the figures on this. When you're driving around the, the highways and byways of Boulder County, you'll see so many houses on one side of the river or the creek and, and there's a bridge that connects them. A lot of houses themselves weren't necessarily destroyed, but the bridges were taken out. So I know many people who were paying mortgages on a house that they could not access Mm. and they had to then go find somewhere else. And a lot of those folks are really traumatised. I know of people, divorces happened because of stress, economic trauma, all of these different things. A lot of people didn't want to tell their stories and I know that's been an issue too. People at this point, I think, are are trying to evaluate the the really significant impact. But but things like that, you know, when when the bridge to your house goes out, you might say, "Well, my house wasn't destroyed." Yeah, but you cannot get to it. And Katie, I know you had some figures on that. Yeah. Um. So, 
It was about 170 private bridges and accesses that were destroyed in the flood. And some of those private bridges, basic bridges, when we were starting to look at rebuilding them, homeowners were getting quotes of $200,000, dollars $500,000, but their house was still in, intact. So insurance companies didn't really know what to do and how to pay. And the federal government had never before financed um private access. So there was no program anywhere in this country for how to help rebuild bridges. And Boulder County worked with our federal partners in setting up a program to uh, access federal funds for rebuilding private infrastructure. And I know that that's been used, that program has been used two or three other times in this country since the flood as a result of Boulder County, unfortunately, being on the front lines of many disasters in this country. kind of making federal partners. FEMA is really good at responding to hurricanes. They know how to respond to hurricanes. Um, But the Mountain West flooding, the Mountain West fires is a little bit of a different beast. It's increasing more. Um, So every disaster teaches us new things and new programs. And that's something Boulder County is really proud of is getting funding to help people reestablish their bridges. If you drive up 36 um, to Estes Park through Lyons, many of those bridges were wiped out and many of those bridges were rebuilt through federal, state, local, and resident partnerships. So it's really a testament to like um, advocating for yourself and everybody, everybody advocating for everybody else along all levels of the hierarchy. Mm. And we have one last caller as we wrap up the show here. We have Jim from Boulder who was in the area 10 years ago. Jim, you are on the air. Hi. Um, I remember reading in the controversy over CU wanting to maximize the amount of square footage of land it could build on to expand over for CU South that um, there were people saying there were areas that were easier and better to work on, that it was better to leave that part of that area as a place for floodwaters to go on South Boulder Creek, but C wanted to have the maximum amount of land to build as many things as they could there. Anyway, there was some sort of idea to have more floodproofing on all the different creeks all around Boulder, not to just maximize one place that would benefit CU. And simple things, I think, like more kinds of warnings and early warning systems and it seemed like they were very inexpensive and easy to do things that weren't being done to prevent and to spread things over many different creeks i don't know if that was all accurate back then but it seemed to be thanks thank you for that jim kind of wrapping that commentary into my final question and our final minutes here for both of you what do each or both of you think we've learned from these 2013 floods and how can we apply those lessons to future disasters, whether that's floods, fires, building, housing? How do you how do you think that we can use what we've learned to improve or prepare for the future? Um, Boulder County as an organization has really learned 
that for um, successful community-engaged recovery, we need to meet community where they're at, whether that's in the community or online or virtually. We need to host town halls and community engagement events that do not have prescripted agendas and that really are listening sessions because we may have some notion about the perceived need of community and we may be totally wrong about the actual need of community and then we've really learned a lot about language access and what language access looks like in this community and um, what equity looks like what does equity and disaster recovery look like in this county which as may have said earlier is a pretty affluent county and some people can just dismiss issues of equity because we are an affluent county but still in this county, the trends that play out nationally play out here and that the most vulnerable, the most at-risk populations are the ones most impacted. So mobile homes, Spanish-speaking, undocumented. So continuing, continuing to focus those populations in our outreach and efforts means we do better for everyone. Because if, we, if we're doing better for those that are the most under-resourced, everybody else is going to um, do better as well. Mm. Yeah, and I think just to sort of echo what we've all been talking about, really about, you know, community resilience lies in community. And I think what happened in the flood, but also the fires, the shooting, I mean, everything is that there, there is huge strength in this community. We have a strong, uh, I think, at a county level, at a state level, institutions in place but really so much of that strength lies in community institutions whether they're nonprofits or neighborhoods just neighbors reaching out to neighbors institutions like KGNU that really pay, play an integral part in getting information out and being a touchstone in times of community so continue to invest in those community institutions whether it's the nonprofits that will be there to show up for the kids or the mental health issues and all, and all of these. So community resilience lies in the strength of a community is the community itself. And as we are facing increased uh, natural disasters, we're going to have to really double down on those community institutions. Talk to your neighbours. Talk to your neighbours. Yeah, talk to your neighbours. Well, that is a great place to end the conversation here. Katie Arrington, the Recovery and Resiliency Program Manager for Boulder County, working on flood mitigation and recovery efforts since 2013. And Maeve Comran, the former news director here at KGNU and the current managing editor at the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. To both of you, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. It was fun to be here.